Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. I'm joined today by Mark Wade. You may know Mark from writing Kingdom Come, Irredeemable, Flash, JLA, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, many, many more. He's the publisher of Humanoids and the editor of a work we're going to talk about in some depth here today, The History of Science Fiction. This work is written by Xavier Dolo, artist, Jibril Morissette fan, Mark, thanks so much for hopping on to talk the history of science fiction. How are you doing? Good. Happy to be here. I'm happy to talk about the book. I'm very pleased by it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting read, and I'm excited to dive in. The history of science fiction, for those of you listening, will include links here in the show notes, but it's a 200 or so page graphic novel encapsulating the enormous and fascinating history of the genre, right? From Shelley to Verne to Asimov to Star Trek to Star Wars and beyond. It's everything. Like, it's really, really everything. Mark, what kind of discovery or revisiting of sci-fi did you do while editing and working on this project? Like, what were some of the highlights for you in terms of remembering or discovering new work? Right. For me, a lot of it was bathing in the golden age of science fiction again, bathing in the stuff of the 20s and 30s when it was really starting to be a thing, when, you know, when when the term science fiction was even created. Yeah. Um, that was fun. And, and then also, frankly, near the end of the book, as we get into you know, the Ted Changs and Rebecca Roan horses and so forth of N.K. Jemison's of today, you know, being reminded that uh, I need to ca- I need to refresh a little bit. I need to catch up on my more modern science fiction. And that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's so much good stuff out there. I mean, that's one of the things that I was so enamored with reading this book is like I could basically use this as a reference text for the rest of my life. <laughs> for that, all the sci-fi. That's the goal. I mean, seriously, I wanted to produce a book that I wanted us to produce a book that was a textbook that yeah. you could, it would be in libraries and in classrooms for the foreseeable future. Yeah, no, it definitely functions on that level. And, it, you know, one of the appeals of of the graphic novel form here, too, that, that Dolo and Fan really tap into is there's an interweaving story, right? Because it's, you know, histories can get dense, right, by their nature, um, especially with something this unwieldy, right? Sci-fi, there's so much to it. Uh, they do incorporate a bit of story and some clever narrative framings. Like The Golden Age is something that I'm really enamored with myself right now because I hadn't explored it previously. Um, mm-hmm. And those conversations between, they have conversations between Asimov and, and, and you know, these, these golden age authors that I'm only now sort of exploring for myself. That was really fun, even though it's like, okay, clearly they probably didn't sit in the Kirkwood house and have these conversations. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, ima- the idea that they could have is fun. Right. Imagine conversations, but the beauty of it is it gives you a new perspective on the history from, you know, through the eyes of the people who made it. Yeah. Yeah. And the way their works, you know, kind of intersect and overlap yeah. and, and and kind of build off each other. Uh, so like I'm saying, definitely as a voracious consumer of story, like this year has been a big year for me in terms of sci-fi. A nice chunk of that is driven by media adaptations that are going sure. around the world, right? We see Dune is this huge thing right now. We see Foundation on Apple Plus um, or Apple <laughs> Apple Plus combining Apple and Disney into the, the conglomerate <laughs> they may one day become. Right. Um, these massive big budget interpretations. I'm curious culturally. What kind of trends are you seeing that that think like this is a particular moment for science fiction? Like, like is that something you're noting in the culture where it's like this burst of sci-fi? It kind of feels like a moment. It does kind of feel like a moment at the same time that it's it has been so it has permeated our our culture and our audience so heavily that like I like to say that I can't imagine in the Western world that you could go one day without encountering science fiction in some form mm-hmm. or another, whether it's you know, what you're seeing in media or what you're, you know, what you're invent, what, what your devices around you were doing. But I do think there is uh you know, Dan, you hit upon it with Dune. I think there's a, a bigger world building 
sense that I'm getting out of science fiction in the moment. The, you know, the, the, the desperate need to reach beyond what we know now, you know, the world around us, which is obviously fueled by our fears of climate change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the, you know, the uncomfortable, the uncomfortableness of which, you know, we've seen the world around us in the last few years. So obviously it's not just a matter of coming up with escape, escapism. I think it's also a matter of you're seeing a lot of escapism in the form of here's an entire new world. Here's an entire mm-hmm. new reality. Like the, like the reality that we might need that <laughs> because right. of what's happening exactly. in the world around us. But yeah. here's foundation. Here's wheel of time. Here's doom. There's no, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a coincidence that all of these are sort of coming to bear at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I'm beginning to pick up on. And I I find that really interesting. You know, you're you're alluding to it there. One thing that really struck me about the history of sci-fi here is the umbrella for what can be considered science fiction is extremely broad in ways I had not heretofore really considered. Like to me, sci-fi was, yes, the Star Wars and the space opera stuff, but also like I would have considered like, okay, real hard sci-fi stuff, right? Your Asimov's, your, your, your sort of like really scientific based analysis. But here, you know, in this book, it's including honestly a lot of like superhero comics, right? And like the genres that I would have otherwise thought, oh, yeah, those are separate. But now that I do the math, it's like, okay, yes, like we have these scientific origins for so many of our favorite heroes. Do you feel like, like, is all of superhero comics, does that fall under a sci-fi umbrella to you? Or is there, is there some distinction there? Hey, that's a good question. I mean, I, certainly superpowered characters do. I'm not sure that the characters like Batman mm-hmm. so much do, um, but there's a case to be made for that. I agree. Um, yeah, it, it's that, yeah, you know, I've never thought about it that way before, but I, I think the answer would be yes. If you're talking about superpowered characters and superheroes mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. I think that's I think very much all that falls under the rubric of science fiction. Sure. Sure. No, it, yeah. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, it, we have all these creators here. And, and you yourself have this, you know, influence on the comics genre. Some of your works are included here, like Kingdom Come. Um, one thing that I found pretty cool is is the authors here. We have Dolo and Fan. They they explain how a lot of these creators, these sci-fi writers, were inventing things before they were invented. You know, there's, yeah. there's a, a lot of examples here of like, you know, just their imaginations. They were coming up with things before they happened. I was curious, you know, you have a, a comics career that spans decades now. Is there anything from your career where you're like, you've seen it come to fruition and you're like, Hey, I think I invented that back in flash or whatever it might be. <laughs> if you had that not, moment, not so much me, but the, but tied to me, I had this moment where I was an editor in DC in the late eighties and I was editing Legion of superheroes, which is mm-hmm. a book set a thousand years in the future. And we were coming up with a whole new spin on it. And the question arose, okay, what kind of devices are these 20, you know, these 30th century kids going to walk around with that they would communicate to themselves with, mm-hmm. you know, not just they're going to be using 20th century technology. And it was Richard Bruning, who was the art director at DC at the time, who came into my office with a, a fully formed sketch of something he called the Omnicom, which is basically the iPhone. He invented the iPhone in 1988. Yeah, uh, that's that's the big moment. I look at that and go, "Holy smokes!" That because we <laughs> use the the kids, the characters in the book use the Omnicom exactly like we use an iPhone today for all yeah. the things it does. Yeah. That's a great one. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so, all right. So in this book, we've got this graphic novel that definitely, again, people should check out um, again, just it's a, it's a nice visual work, but even just again, as a reference text, if you're into sci-fi, if you're getting into sci-fi, there's just so much meat on the bone here of things to explore that I makes think it so really, valuable. Yeah. 
I, I think that, I mean, I think that one of the things that Xavier did really well and very smartly was every few pages, there's, there are dense sidebars. You know, yeah. if you enjoyed this topic, here's six other things you might want to look at. Here's movies, here's, t- you know, TV shows, here's novels, here's science, short science fiction stories. Uh, and th- those carry throughout the entire book. They were a bit of a bear because originally the book was printed in France uh, mm-hmm. and sold in France by our, by humanoids, French uh, branch. I got to look at the book and I'm like, we, we, we really need to do this here. I, I hadn't even read it yet at that point, but I just saw the pages and thought, yeah, this is something. Mm-hmm. So we had, uh, you know, we, we lost a few pages that were very, 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 very Francophile uh, slanted uh, that wouldn't have had as much impact on the American market. We added a few more pages that have a little bit more to do with what's happening in American science fiction right now, you know, mm-hmm. here today. Sure. Um, but the sidebars were a particular challenge because so much of the reference, the material referred to in the sidebars, you might like this, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not going to send you to a French science fiction from a movie from 1952 that has never been translated. I'm just going to yeah. have to find something else to slug in that spot. So there are a bunch of us who worked on filling those holes and bu- rebuilding those sidebars in a way that, you know, Xavier gave the thumbs up to and, you know, stay, stay, stay topical, but yeah, that there's so much to be done. You look at this thing. If you look at this thing, like it's a a full meal, it's really not, it's not a dinner course. It's an appetizer. Yeah. Um, Right. And there's just so many, you know, it's the totality of it. Like you said, from, you know, the ancient Roman times, you know, Homer being a science fiction author. Well, yeah. What is the Cyclops, if not a science fiction character? Um, And, and really kicking off with Mary Shelley. Who yeah. is the? For those who know, not a surprise, but for those who don't, I mean, it's Frankenstein is considered the sign, the, the first science fiction book, and everything from there all the way, like I said, to Rebecca Roan Horace and Ted Chang and and the luminaries of today. I just there's so much here. There's yeah. so, and yet I think it's a fun read, and not it doesn't read like a textbook. It doesn't read like homework. Right. No, it's light on its feet, which is, which is much appreciated when you have as much, no, that was one of my follow-ups was, you know, how much had to change from European version to American. Um, What was kind of the, what was kind of the curation process or the curation team in terms of like, in terms of like, okay, we have to pick, you know, the best 30 graphic novels for sci-fi. Like that's a tough thing to do. It it really was. It was just, we were, suggestions were made around the office and it was, it was very much a group effort to, to winnow down those choices. And I want to mm-hmm. go on record as saying that when it came to kingdom come, I said, I'm not going to make this call. If everybody else wants this in there, yeah. you're welcome to, but I, 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 I abstained from voting on this one. <laughs> All right. Fair. Duly noted. Yeah. There was no, no shenanigans in the voting office. No. That, is, that is good to know. All right. Very cool. So, all right. I think that covers a lot of what I want to talk about here with history of science fiction. Um, I do want to turn it now to humanoids and kind of your role there. Um, you know, in comics, sci-fi is certainly everywhere. Um, but when I think across publishers, right, like there's, there's not necessarily one that is like the sci-fi home, right? Like image by virtue of saga being the biggest thing in sci-fi right. is it definitely makes sense there. Um, do you see this as a line for humanoids? or a lane rather uh, for humanoids to really kind of fill and like hone in on as your, your central beat. I know you have different imprints, but is that a, is that a major focus that you want to take the company? It is a major focus in that we, I mean, we published the Incal, which is the biggest selling science fiction graphic novel of all time. Yeah. And that was, you know, many, many years ago, and it continues to be a, a bestseller around the world. 
And it's way past time that we looked at that universe and sort of cracked that code mm. and started coming up with new stories that fit in that universe by some really super talented people that yeah. are working in comics today. I can't, we haven't announced anything yet. We haven't talked about anything. Actually, he's in France. We have Pete Woods and Brandon Thomas have done a, a Wolfhead uh, five issue spinoff. Oh, cool. Yeah. We put it together in one in one graphic novel, but that's being published in France right now. It'll, it'll see print over here in 2022. And there were a couple of other projects like that lined up with some big name creators. And, you know, I, I, I like being a home for science fiction in, in America. I like being, you know, like you said, I like being that. That's our lane. I, yeah. that's what, but I'm also really proud of the, the other imprints we have. The, the predominant one, I mean, is the Life Drawn imprint, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, it can be science fiction, but probably not. It's more the grounded real world stuff, biographies of Rod Serling and Bela Lugosi and other Marilyn Monroe stories. And then fiction stories that are not necessarily science fiction, crime fiction, horror fiction. Uh, It's, it's a really interesting line and we've had some real strong successes with it in a, at a time when I thought we would have done better with the genre stuff. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, I've enjoyed uh, Lugosi this year, which I, I don't yeah. have like familiarity there. And that was actually part of the appeal for me was like, hey, this is a new thing. Um, and the MPLS sound was it was a cool one following yeah. the rise of Star Child and the connections to Prince and all that. Um, okay, good deal. Yeah. So do you think the the challenge with expanding the Incal universe, which is something that like definitely as a reader that I'm pretty new to, um, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll want to talk about, you know, this just got announced and greenlit Taika Waititi is going to be directing a movie for the Incal. Yeah. Like, obviously that's a big deal for humanoids. I imagine like that's, you're talking about oh, yeah. this amazing selling thing. Like that's only going to help. Um, so that's great. Do you think the challenge with expanding that has been, it's so creator defined, you know, Jodorowsky and Mobius are, are kind of yeah. titans. Like, is, yeah, it's, I mean, we that? have done. Yeah, we have done other books. Jodo has done other books with a couple of other uh, author or other other illustrators in that same universe. And, but it's still very Jodo centric. I mean, it's still and have, finding people who have the balls to stand in those shoes that yeah. was yeah. that was a challenge right then and there. Uh, but we've been very judicious. I mean, you know, obviously, when the word got out in the creative community that we were looking to do this, we got inundated with pitches and ideas and people coming to us and we had to be very, you know, very exacting what we wanted and had to be people who were, whose work was transgressive. That's the word we like to use around the office because, and not as a, you know, corporate buzzword, but genuinely that's the foundation upon which we have built transgressive work, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the sexual, you know, the sexuality of the work and the, 80s and 90s in ways you didn't see at other places or the politics of it or whatever, but anything we can do that that feels like we're breaking rules, anything we can do that's transgressive and is pushing envelopes, that that's corporate speak. I hate to say that, but <laughs> you get my point. Yeah. Those that, that, so that's what we're looking for. We're looking at, you know, why sell me a story that you wouldn't be able to get published anywhere else. Yeah. That was, yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, that makes sense. So the Incal, you know, we talk about it. It's this incredibly well-established thing. I think for a lot of American readers, and I think this is part of the push for humanoids, it is uh, often one, it, it can feels kind of dense. It feels like a lot, you know, like the, the Jodoverse, yeah. like it's this big thing. Um, how, how do you pitch this? How do you sell the Incal to readers who are coming from more of the traditional American superhero fare? Like, like why should they dig into this work if they don't already know the, right. the talents of these creators, you know? 
it's, I mean, the nice thing is it starts from a very grounded place. It starts from, you know, a, a down and out, you know, hard on his luck PI named John DeFool, yeah. who just stumbles, literally stumbles onto this artifact that everybody seems to want. He doesn't know why. And he's being chased around the world and he ends up being chased to other planets. And then he starts to find out more about what this thing is and how it connects to a greater, a greater thing than, you know, than humanity and a bigger thing beyond that and how it influences entire religions. So it built, I think the way you sell it is it doesn't start with the giant stuff. Like you don't, Mm -hmm. if it did, I can understand people fleeing in horror because it'd be so much to take in, but no. It's, you know, we, we spoon feed to you and it's, it's, we, we start you on a very realistic uh, note and then we just slowly sort of unveil layer by layer the density of this, of this universe to the point yeah. where you get to the end and you go, well, now I know where Grant Morrison came from. Yeah. <laughs> right. It gets stranger and stranger as yeah. it progresses. That, that was actually, so that was one thing that I really appreciated about it was like, it's like, oh, I, I thought this would be so weird and no, it's a PI story. And then it gets yeah. weirder and weirder as it goes, yeah. but it's like, yeah. I, I know this, I know, I know detective stories, yeah. you know? Um, all right. Awesome. So as publisher of humanoids, you know, you've got these weapons in your arsenal in terms of, of Moebius and Jodorowsky. You were formally announced as publisher in February 2020, which like now most of us look back with the benefit of hindsight and think like that was the last month in America before we realized we were in a pandemic, right? Like yeah. that was yeah. that was a wild time to be formally announced. Like what's it been like for you in this role as publisher of a, a, of a you know, a comic book publishing company as so much has changed in the world and industry? I would be lying if I said that it was like falling off a log because it wasn't. Um, yeah. I, so I was the author of my own fate to some degree, and this is a true story. I took on the job on March 1st, uh, officially took on the job. And I sat down mm-hmm. with the staff and I said, listen, and I know you're all worried about this fire or that fire and these little things come up. I said, I've been in the business for almost 40 years. Trust me, I've seen everything there is to see. In fact, I said, like Icarus flying toward the sun, I look forward to you bringing me a problem I've never seen before. <laughs> yeah. That day, our you know our assistant announces that she is leaving to go to France. The next day, a third of our back stock is taken out by a freak tornado, mm. and then day three, the world shuts down. So, yeah. wow, it was a challenge. But I will say, all props to Fabrice Geiger, who owns the company and is, and is humanoids. Uh, Fabrice never put a pencils down order on the creative people. He never laid anybody off. Uh, he kept the wheels moving and the attitude in the office was, all right, why don't we take this, you know, why don't we take the next four or five months to just fall back, really decide what we want to do, really take advantage of this break to come up with some new approaches, some new things, and don't feel like we have to scramble to get books out the door right now. Instead, use that energy to building what we want to do in the future. And that gave us a huge leg up. That gave us an enormous leg up that we weren't having to figure out how to how to pay salaries at the same time we were trying to figure out how to negotiate COVID. Yeah, so yeah. we came out of it, we came out of it very well, very good. And we came out of it with I think some really strong properties in the in the last part of the year. Like you said, MPL Sound, uh, the one that's very print centric, that's sold extremely well for us. Yeah. Um, so it 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 had its challenges, but the silver lining was we were able to use the time to our advantage. Yeah. Very cool. No, it sounds like a, a 
finding some optimism, finding finding yeah. some hope within that very tumultuous time, which we're still still in the midst of. Um, so getting back to kind of, you know, the history here, right? The history of science fiction. There's a notable drive in your recent work on histories and kind of passing down learnings, right? You have the history of the Marvel Universe, this history of sci-fi work you're editing, um, an upcoming how to make comics the Marvel way. Uh, what is it about these types of projects that you're finding like more energizing and more essential these days? I think that you reach a point in your life where your head is just so full of stuff. You want to share it with other people. Yeah. I re- I think that's a big part of it. I've always been an historian of, of the comics medium and just to a lesser degree, the science fiction medium, but you, you know, you don't realize how much, you know, until you try to teach it to somebody else. And you also don't realize how much you don't know until you start to tr- teach it to somebody else. And so mm. the, you know, the benefit is not just I'm, you know, with this Marvel history or, or how to do comics or whatever. It's not that I'm just passing that information. I'm also getting a chance to look at how I process it, hmm. uh, you know, with the how to do comics the Marvel way, which comes out in July, I guess, of next year, okay. which is soup to nuts, like how to do comics from, you know, you, I have an idea for a story to here's a finished comic book, everything, yeah. all the steps that it takes in between, because I've been doing this for long enough where I've done all those steps. Um, it forced me as I'm writing and trying to explain how to do things in comics to look at all those tools and ask myself, is this still relevant or do we still do things this way? Has technology changed how we do this in the last four or five years, last 10 years? What do I, what do I need to know? So it was great for me. I mean, I relearned lettering. I, Mm. I learned a lot more about coloring than I knew before in order to teach it. And so that's the joy of it. If it were just a matter of me just standing on a, le- uh, on a mountaintop lecturing, it would get dull real fast. But mm-hmm. there is a, there's a benefit to that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Do you have any like specific examples of, of things in your writing where you're like, I would have approached this story differently you know, prior to putting together this how-to book? Yeah, I, it, it remind, putting together the book reminded me of something very, very important that I lose sight of from time to time, which is that the... the the idea that a plot is not a story, hmm. uh, the idea that a plot is a framework for a story. And when I first started in comics, all I really wanted to do was have the cleverest plot. Yeah. And I wasn't really thinking about characterization. I wasn't really thinking about, you know, character arcs, anything like that. And starting out, I just thought the goal was to have an airtight, you know, Swiss watch of a plot. And only after doing it for a certain number of years did I realize, no, I mean, frankly, nobody remembers plot. Like I defy you to tell me the plot of any James Bond movie. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, rem- that's not what you remember. What you remember are the car chases. You remember the mom- moments when your blood was up. You remember the, the love scenes. You remember the, the moments when you were engaged, right. On a, on a visceral level. That's what you yeah. remember. The, so, the villain's accents, Sean Connery's shirtless yeah, yeah, performance. Exactly. <laughs> that's what I remember. So, just, yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. So what I had, what the doing this, what, you know, writing the book reminded me of is that, if it's if there's not emotion in the story, if the story is not founded on someone's emotional journey, or if there's not strong emotion in the story, it may as well be a, a Sudoku puzzle. Hmm. Interesting. I think that actually ties into something that I so I was reading the, the oral history that you did with um mm-hmm. Brevort on Fantastic Four on, on your yeah. own there on Newsrama, which is a really great piece. See, you guys have some really fun back and forth and some good insights into that run, which I love. Um, and you talk in that at one at one point about um your first issue that run you say might be the best thing you've ever done 
on a technical level. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on why you feel that way. Cause I mean, you've written a lot of really good beloved comics. Um, and I, I don't know if people had had to guess, like they'd say, okay, what, what, what does Mark Way think his, his best technical achievement is they'd go to that fantastic four issue. Why do you feel that way about that, that comic? I'll tell you, because there is a unique challenge to writing the first issue of anything. Mm -hmm. And we approach this very much as if Fantastic Four had never been published for the last 20 years. And this is your first exposure. Because again, every comic is supposed to be somebody's first. Mm -hmm. And in this case, because we knew it was going to be a nine cent comic as a promotional tool to get in the hands of hundreds of thousands of people, I needed it to be inviting. But I also needed it to be a complete story because I don't, I don't believe in giving you a taste and then forcing you to come back next month. I would rather give you a story that yeah. you love so much that you voluntarily come back next month for, because then I've got you, you know, then, then you're invested. You don't, there's no resentment there. You don't feel like you just got, you paid money and only got a third of the story. Right. So there is a, there is a, if I may say so, I mean, there is a real talent to being able to write something that is self-enclosed like that, that tells you absolutely everything you need to know about those characters to understand their adventures that does it in an economical way where we hit all the characters' names, we hit all the characters' backstories, we hit all the characters' personalities, everybody gets their moment. It, it really is, that was like building a Swiss watch. That was every line of dialogue had to mean something. Every panel had to be important. There had to, it had to be a Jenga where if you take a single panel out of that story, stuff just starts to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, it's a big part of what makes it work so well. And I think, you know, for a, a lot of contemporary readers, and I don't want to speak for everyone here, but definitely for myself, Fantastic Four was that, it was that thing where, oh, this is my dad's favorite comic and yeah, that's exactly. nice for him, but I didn't have that. <laughs> yeah, ex <laughs> you know? no, exactly. I, that was that was going in. I said, look, everybody, you know, everybody likes the thing. You know, a lot of people like the Human Torch. People like Sue Richards, but nobody likes Reed Richards. Nobody mm -hmm. under the age of 50 likes Reed Richards. So let's fix that. And so that's where I put my energy, but, you know, getting back to the, you know, the, the, the nine cent issue. I mean, if I've done it right, then you don't notice that's the, that's the beauty of it. If I've done my job as introducing these characters to you in a perfect way and you don't see the seams, you don't see the bolts and the, you know, and the, the rough edges then I've done my job yeah, yeah. and I really, I don't, speak highly of my own work an awful lot because all I look or all I see are the mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. but I look back at this and I think, no, we, and, and with, you know, with all credit to Michael Ringo, the artist, I mean, we, I think we nailed that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, Ringo is amazing. I mean, it's, it's a oh, very yeah. good run. I, I look back on it incredibly fondly. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to make you talk positively about yourself one more time. What do you think <laughs> is the most, <laughs> what do you think is the most underrated project you've worked on in comics? That's a good question. I, hmm. When Barry Kitson and I relaunched Legion of Superheroes hmm. in the late 2000s, I thought we had something. And we actually did have something because the second issue outsold the first and the third issue outsold the second. And that doesn't happen. That just, that is not how it works in comics. So we had momentum. And then all of a sudden the Legion was showing up in other books and it wasn't our Legion. And it was sort of implied that our Legion was not the real Legion or something. And so interest fell off immediately, but I really look back and then I think we were ahead of our time in terms of storytelling on a lot of that stuff. And I, I've written, yeah, trust me, I, I can 
sit here all day and list the things that I've written that I don't want you to read, but I like, I like what we did there. And I, I wish that had gotten a better reception. I think if, if we had done it five years later, I think that we would have, we would have had something really big. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, cause there's, there's been a real hunger for Legion since that yeah. time is the irony. And like, yeah. there's been a, a pretty big gap until very, very recently within the last two years or so. Um, so, all right. So the, the run with Barry Kitson on Legion, we got to get, we got to get more readers checking out. Um, all right. I want to tap into some announcements that have come up recently. Uh, it was announced sure. recently. You'll be working with Dan Mora on some Superman, Batman backups. Uh, love yep. that work. That's super exciting. Uh, we had a, a question from a listener here. David Mann asks, how much is world's finest being geared to showcase and push Mora compared to how Daredevil did with Samney Rivera and Martin? The, the same. I mean, that's the whole goal is to let, let Dan be Dan because his work is astounding. And I've seen three pages as of today and they are breathtaking. And I, I made it clear to Dan, as I make it clear to all the, the artists I work with, but Dan, I think, has taken it to heart. It's a collaborative meeting. Mm -hmm. That's why it works so well with Paolo and Marcus Martin and Chris Sami on Daredevils. But it's, it's, it's a collaborative medium, and I'm, I don't want them to feel like an art robot. It's important for me to feel like they're engaged in the story, like, you know, like they are able to, you know, be emotionally invested, that, they, that their ideas are heard. Uh, and I think Dan gets that and it really comes across in the pages he turned in. Uh, he did some stuff that was unexpected that I, I looked at and went, that's not how I envisioned it, but actually this is better, which is perfect. That's exactly what I want. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the big, that's the big project for 2022. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Do, do you free up your style at all when you know you're working with an artist who's like really hot and up and coming like this, like Mora? Um, do you, do you like loosen up sort of what you're scripting into it in order to sort of push them to, to take over? Or how do you approach that, you know, in terms of conveying that? I don't at first. I mean, it's whenever I'm starting out with, it's like any relationship, you know, you want to understand where the other person's coming from first and build a relationship. But certainly once I get into it, uh, by all means, you know, have, let the artist have their head as much as they want. When I was doing, when, when Chris and I were doing uh, Daredevil, when we were doing Daredevil Chris Omni, you know, in the back third of our run there, a lot of times it was just, okay, Chris, here's some dialogue and here's the beats we need to hit and, you know, go choreograph it because you're, that's what you excel at. And, and I would never do that if they didn't want to do it. I don't, I'm not pushing responsibility on uh, 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 artists to do my job for me. I just want to make sure that they understand it's a collaborative medium. So, you know, I'm sure with Dan, as we move on, you know, from month to month that, that relationship will grow. Cool. Cool. So, uh, you know, in addition to that, we saw uh, Brian Hitch teased out there's a Superman black label project in the works. Is there anything you can say about that at this point? Uh, very broad strokes in terms of what that might be. The only thing I can say, and because I've said this elsewhere is that it's, it's very much in my mind, a sequel to birthright. Okay, cool. So not, a, not necessarily a direct sequel, but it, you'll, it's that's basically my interpretation of Superman. That's basically the the birthright interpretation of Lex Luthor, the birthright interpretation of these characters, mm -hmm. um, and it looks phenomenal. It was I had had the pitch in for a long time, and the previous publisher didn't want to have anything to do with it, uh, even though Brian said, "Please let me draw this." Mm -hmm. And then the regime changed, and it was approved that day uh, as a project. And so it's tailor made for for Brian. I, it's, I can't, I can't tell you why, but once you see it, you'll understand why it's tailor-made for him. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Cool. Well, that's exciting. So there's been, you know, so you're going to have a couple Superman based projects, right? Coming up yeah. next year. There's been a, a huge cultural push for evil Superman recently, right? We see this in a lot of media, uh, the invincible, the boys, uh, elements of even like the Snyderverse, right? Batman vs Superman, Justice League. You've played in this territory longer and better than most with Irredeemable, right? You know that space, yeah. evil Superman. Yeah. Do you want to see a move away from this take in comics and TV? Like, is it is it more interesting to you to to talk about the opposite of that now that you've kind of reconstructed, you know, the the Superman? Part of me, the part of me that really loves Superman wishes that maybe we'd stop hitting that note so heavily. On the other hand, I don't want to come across like a protective old fogey who's like, you know, Superman has to be only one way. Yeah. So frankly, if they want to keep playing that card, that's okay. That means that I get to be unique in, in my approach. So swell, the, you know, the more that you want to do, the more that people who really love Superman want to see Superman, they, then where else are they going to come to, but our approach. Yeah. As someone who loves Superman, you know, yourself here, I can see the, the soups poster behind you there. Um, what do you think it is that audiences are so like, why are, why are audiences so into the irredeemable version, the Plutonian? Like, what do you think That's it is great. that captivates them? That's a great question. I, I, you would have to tell me as, as, <laughs> yeah. as the author, I'm not sure other than to say I, it started with, you know, what if Superman turned evil? Mm -hmm. But it very, very quickly moved away from the simplicity of that. And I think very much drilled down into the psyches of all the, of all the characters. Yeah. Um, and including seeing why a character like the Plutonian would actually, you know, turn uh, from being Superman to being a bad guy. It's not a facile turn. It's not an easy turn. Right. And really doing a deep dive. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Insufferable is another example. I know not, not as many people know Insufferable, but that was the, the short take on that was what if Robin grew up to be an asshole? You know, what if, what if Batman and Robin split up, you know, later in, in Robin's career because Robin turned into be uh, Kanye West and a complete jerk. And I wrote the first issue of that with that in mind, but then I got to the end of it and I thought, all right, great. That's a joke. I mean, that's, that's a clever idea but it's not a premise that has legs you mm. need to have it and the same with plutonian and, and and the evil superman thing it that's a that's a great take it's clever but you know what it you're not going to get 37 issues out of that right unless you run. build yeah. on unless you unless you really dig down on the characters and help understand help people understand why they are who they are mm-hmm mm-hmm no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think too with the Plutonian and Irredeemable, one of the things that definitely works for me is it, like that's that character, that profile, that um, you know, the idea of Superman is so big, whatever whatever the version is, the impact it has on everyone around them is, yeah. is fascinating as well, right? So then within Irredeemable, okay, the, what if Superman was evil? Cool premise, but now we get to see how that impacts everyone else from the top down, and that's right. where the story really gets legs. And I think you know that's that's one thing I definitely gravitate to. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'll tell you that, you know, one of the lessons I learned early on was after the first four issue arc, you know, I, I realized that I can keep showing him being evil by having him destroy things over and over again, but that becomes tiresome mm -hmm. and it becomes really dull. And once at the end of issue four, he sinks the entire island of Singapore. I don't know where you go from there. It's, it's and I realized, <laughs> and so, so I realized it really became more about the, the challenge was, okay, how do you show he's evil? in ways that aren't necessarily 
him punching stuff and collapsing it. And mm-hmm. that was, that made it more fun for me by all means. Yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. Very cool. Uh, so I've got just a handful of listener questions here that I want to tackle sure. before I let you go. Um, let's start with this one. We're talking about soups. So Dan asks, considering kingdom come was a major reflection of the world of comics at the time, how would you approach the story? If looking at the current state of comics today, do you think you would have a a very different take? That's a great question. Um, I, I would have a different take because that era doesn't really exist anymore. The idea that, you know, it's all image characters come to life with their giant guns and nobody cares about superheroes. Um, I mean, if nothing else, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has made it okay to like Captain America again. Yeah. But um, so I don't think that I, I, would have, I have a different approach, but I wish I could tell you what that would be. I honestly don't know. If, um, if you've got an approach, then go write your own version of Kingdom Come. I salute you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it is funny, like how how much has changed in those 20 years yeah. in terms of super, I mean, superheroes are not only acceptable now, they are the culture. Like that is the mainstream, you know, pop culture of the world. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very yeah. inverted, yeah, kind of situation. Yeah. Um, it, it is a good question though. I do think that that's a, that's a fun premise for, for potentially exploring as, as creative people. Uh, we have another good question here from Chango ATX who asks, when coming up with the history of Marvel Universe, how'd you go about making stuff canon, clearing up character history, uh, setting up future stories? Was that you and editorial, you and other writers, everyone together, or mostly just you. And, and you kind of saying, Hey, this is my book. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do this. It, thing. it was, it was, it was me and editorial with the prov- proviso that there was an entire research team mm-hmm. that uh, took everything and vetted it, made sure it all made sense and continuity. And those are the guys who did all the backup text pieces that were, Dude, you know, love, expanded. Love yeah. yeah. It was, it, it was a job that should have been a cakewalk that I thought would be when it was given to me. Tom Brevoort mm-hmm. called and said, we want you to do this thing. And, and in fact, Tom even provided me with a page by page breakdown of like, here are the things you should probably cover on this page. And here's the things you should cover on this page, which went out the window pretty quickly, but still I had a roadmap <laughs> to begin with. And I thought, yeah. how hard could this be? Because I've been reading Marvel comics forever. And yeah, I'm a little shaky on the last 10 or 15 years or so, but certainly not, not that much could have happened in the last 15 or 20 years, right? No, mm. you idiot. Of course, <laughs> a lot's happened. Yeah. Cause it's not, so it's not, cause it's not just what happened in the last 20 years. It's all of the retconning mm. that has happened in the last 20 years to the, mm. that affects the stuff that's 50 years before that. So getting in there and having to do a deep dive on just the Eternals alone, maybe want to slip my wrist it was trying to understand the celestials and all this stuff and that um, one's changing i gotta tell you the uh, the current run is, is shifting exactly. things i was shaking on my feet as i was going so <laughs> it was i mean it was a, it was very much a labor of love but i i what i thought was going to be a milk run was something where every issue took me like five times longer than it should have taken me to write a comic book so but it was yeah. worth it and you know thank you wikipedia so <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a really nice, it, it, not exactly the same thing, obviously, as as history science fiction, but a similar kind of reference text where it's like, this is a really fun way to, I just remember when I was getting into Marvel Comics, you had things like the Marvel Encyclopedias, and it's the same sort yeah. of experience of just like, oh, everything, there's so much potential here, there's so much more to read and explore, and it's so fun. And then, uh, it, is it Javier Paludo? And also, uh, Polito doing and that was, one? Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Javier, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's and also to the guy's question, um, in terms of the setups for the future stories, uh, some of that was calling the editors and writers and going, What do you got coming in the next six months or so? Yeah, uh, 
And then some of it was just me just throwing stuff in just to see if anybody would pick up on it someday. So okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but I can't tell you yet which is which because some of them are surprises that are still coming your way in Marvel comics. So a um, lot of them have already happened. Uh, there's right. one. So I, I, I talk X-Men a lot on my yeah. comic book Herald stuff. And there's one in there that is Emma Frost and Tony Stark, uh, the wedding. And this comes up maybe once every two months where people are like, Oh, this is the time or this is the moment. Mark, are, are Emma Frost and Tony Stark going to get married? <laughs> Can you tell us? <laughs> we have a lot of Marvel. We have a lot of Marvel comics to publish in the next 10 years. So I think statistically things are on your side. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I'll be perfectly honest with you. That was the, that was the one that was the complete utter. I'm just going to throw this wrench in and just see if anything ever comes of it. Oh, that's that's the, that was, yeah. that was the one that had no connection to anything that just felt like, all right, let's just throw it in the mix things up. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's so excellent. That is going to, that is going to really mess with so many fan theories. Um, but also like you're saying, there's no reason somebody couldn't run with that. At a one of my, day. yeah. One of my favorite stories when I was a kid was this adult Legion story. Basically it was in the 1960s. And what the idea was the kids, the Legion superheroes in the 30th century. So Superman, Superboy visits them a thousand years in the future. Mm -hmm. And they did it with the story once where it was Superman going a thousand years in the future to visit his friends. Now that they're adults, he hasn't seen them in, you know, since they were teenagers. And in that story, we were introduced to a lot of legionnaires that we'd never seen before. We were introduced to legionnaires who had died in battle, who we didn't, who who were completely made up, right? They, they invented a whole history for that for that period that we not seen. And then the beauty of being a legion fan over the next fifteen years or so was every once in a while someone would pull on that, pull a thread from that tapestry, and like suddenly, oh, Shadow Lass, she was just a shadow, she was just a, a statue in that story, but she's actually a real character here. Um, so I, I want I like that. I mean, I yeah. really have fond memories of that. And so I was trying to recreate to some degree, recreate that with uh, the end of history, Marvel universe. And so we'll see, somebody will marry off Tony Stark and Emma Frost. If, if nothing, if nothing else, I'll do it. If I have to, <laughs> there we go. There we go. That's a promise. Awesome. All right. So we got history of science fiction here. There everybody should check out again. We'll put links here in the show notes. Uh, we talked about some of the announcements about what's coming from on the, on the DC side, on Superman side. Um, what else do you have coming? What, what other projects do you want to make sure people know about? Um, oh, good Lord. And anyway, I think you hit them on everything. I really do. Um, okay. You know, history science fiction, like I said, is, is the crowning jewel. I mean, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow and this is the last thing I publish, I'm good with that. This is, yeah. this is a good piece. Um, you know, and beyond that, we still have, you know, it's not the only book we publish. We're doing, we still do a lot of Jodorowsky material. We actually are starting to package Jodorowsky material in these, in a nice library set. Oh, of nice. yeah. getting all this stuff together in one in one long form that you can put on your bookshelf. Uh, and a lot of that's happening at the end of the year. Um, got a bunch of other projects coming out, but history of science fiction, that's the one I want people to focus on right now, because that is just, you are unprepared for what a great time you're going to have with that book. Absolutely. Absolutely. It inspired me uh, literally today to listen to mm -hmm. Asimov's Nightfall when I was out for a run. So yeah. like, it's already, it's already paying dividends for me cool. as, a, as a fan. Um, all right. Final, final question. This one's a curveball. Uh, yeah. Who's your favorite X-Men artist of all time? Of all time? Of all time. Wow. I, you know, I'm not going to say Werner Roth because that would be the absolute wrong answer. Um, <laughs> I, I honestly, I think that Andy Kubert kicked ass. Mm. I think that he was he was absolutely flying high during his period on the book. Uh, yeah. with, no, with no insult to anybody else since, I think that uh, you know, 
Kubert, the Kuberts, that's those the guy. Whether Annie or Adam or both together, they were yep. they were books. Love that pick, awesome, and uh, and are back doing doing Wolverine right now. And the books, yeah. uh, the books looking good. So haven't missed a step. All right, Mark, this was a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on and talk. Um, yeah, and uh, and we'll make sure to be sharing the work here with everybody. All right, thanks so much. Take care.